0: What does a broken political system look like? Is it one where we can't get enough women into Parliament and can't keep the ones that we have? Or is it one like in the United States where the Federal Government is apparently being shut down altogether? Why is Bill Shorten so keen on banning political donations? And are there any parallels between Billy McMahon and Scott Morrison as Prime Ministers? And most importantly, should the Netflix series movie Roma win the Academy Award this year? All this and more in today's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly uh, podcast of politics and culture presented by the Institute of Public Affairs and recorded in its Melbourne studio. Today is Wednesday the 23rd of January. This is officially episode one of Looking Forward. I am Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Joining me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Chris Berg, leading light of RMIT University and prolific author. Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, very pleased you're here. Uh, also, my colleague, uh, Renee Gorman, who is the National Manager of the IPA's Generation Liberty Program for Young Australians. Thanks for having me on. Great. And also, Dr Richard Alsop, historian, prolific reader and writer, uh, and an ornament to the IPA. Welcome, <laughs> Richard.
1: Thanks, Scott. I don't know what being an ornament means, but <laughs> we'll take as, uh, I'll take it as a compliment. A, a
0: decorative feature. No, we love love having you in, uh, Richard. Now, as I say, this is officially episode one. We did have a pilot, which you can also uh, locate on the uh, relevant platforms. But, uh, Chris, why are we doing. Looking forward, what are we trying to achieve here?
2: Well, we're trying to do a podcast, Scott. Um, uh, we think uh, – and, you know, there's there's good reasons for that right now. I think podcasts are hot and they're fashionable, so that's, that's really good. But I think this is the right time to um, uh, launch a discussion of politics and culture from a centre-right, libertarian, classical, liberal, conservative perspective. Um, not just because there's um, need for one at the moment, there's a gap in the market or whatever, but this – Right now, in our political system, in Australia and around the world, is exactly when we need to be rethinking, debating some of the most basic ideas that underpin our political philosophy and underpin the political philosophies that will, we will hope will drive the governments of the future. So obviously, we've had this populist wave over the last couple of years with um, you know the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and so forth. We It looks like um, the coalition government in, in um, Australia federally is going to lose the next election we we need discussions of the big ideas tied into the issues of the day the time is right the time is right
0: the time is right. and why did we call it looking forward
2: chris well looking forward is a title with a lot of meaning to the ipa looking forward was the title of the um, first ipa publication in 1944 and the purpose of that publication was to spell out what a post-war government would do and if you Think back to the the Second World War. It was a um, it was a time in which a lot of people thought, well, if we can plan the war economy, maybe we can plan the peace economy as well. The IPA wanted to spell out what a private enterprise, a free enterprise, a a liberal. Um, uh, 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 policy setting would look like in the post-war world. It was an extremely successful document. Um, Robert Menzies read from it at the first conference of the Liberal Party. And and hopefully by by naming it looking forward, we're hoping we can get some of that forward-looking vibe as well.
0: Exactly. That's um, uh, because it reminds me of Malcolm Turnbull's uh, famous phrase that he wanted to lead a thoroughly liberal government. The question is what is the agi- <laughs> what would the agenda for a thoroughly... And wouldn't have that been nice? It, it wouldn't have that that been nice. <laughs> Perhaps next time <laughs> under somebody else as well. We will be talking about generational uh, change in a minute but, um, and part of that uh, has been a big announcement this week Uh, is that Kelly O'Dryer, the member for Higgins, Peter Costello's old seat, has announced that she will not recontest the next election. Uh, She is the Minister for Jobs and Industrial Relations, uh, Senior Cabinet Minister, first woman from any party to hold a Treasury portfolio, so uh, chalk that one up as an achievement, Um, and uh, also the Minister for Women. Um, So there's been a lot of symbolism in the fact that she has chosen uh, not to recontest the next election, um, we'll go around the table here, but I might I might start with uh, Renee. How, uh, as someone interested in politics, how did you see this?
3: Um, I wasn't as shocked as everyone else seemed to be. Um, it seems right now that she did this for personal reasons, that including parental reasons, um, and you know that's that's her choice. I don't think we should be berating women for the choices they make. That um, I don't think women should be judged on their Solely on their career, uh, I don't. I do think there may be some issues in the party around women, but I don't think uh, this virtue signalling narrative of identity politics is the way to solve it. Uh, I find it actually quite disempowering for young liberal uh, young liberal women trying to make their way up by telling them that they're, they're the victim. I don't think that that we're going to get more women into politics that way. But at the end of the day, as long as there's equal opportunity and we take the steps to make sure that there's equal opportunity for women, I don't think that we should be concerned that there aren't equal outcomes at the end of the day.
0: But, um, and we will come back to some of the uh, solutions that have that have been thrown around. Um, but before we talk solutions, perhaps we should work a little bit more on the problem. Uh, Richard, uh, you've been inside and outside the Liberal Party at different times in your career. What What would be your observations on uh, not just the issues for individual women but there's uh, when Julia Banks resigned in Chisholm there was a lot of chatter around it's a cultural issue it's a cultural problem lots of uh, how would you uh, assess the situation?
1: Look I think there's a Obviously, the Liberal Party does need to have more women. As, and as a general point, parties need to have a diverse range of candidates. They need to have candidates who broadly represent the community, both in terms of their background and the careers that they've had. I think one of the the, the issues always with a political party is the, the, the conflict, I suppose, between... Po- pre-selecting the best candidate for an individual seat, while at the same time putting together a team of candidates that provides that broad representation. Um, As part of, uh, if you were picking a team of people to represent a political party in parliament you'd pick you would obviously sit down and think of all the different backgrounds and so forth that you'd want represented to make sure that you didn't have uh, too many uh, lawyers or in the labour party's case too many union hacks coming through um, and to make sure you've got a diverse range in both of gender and uh, background but obviously, most, particularly in the Liberal Party, which is pretty democratic in how it does its pre selections, people sit down in an individual electorate and are purely looking at the candidates they have there. They're picking who they think is the best person for that seat. And I think sometimes um, that where you've, you then have this overarching pressure of trying to pick the best person for a team. And we're seeing that in a couple of playing out in a couple of different ways this week, not only with what's happened with Kelly, where obviously people feel that she needs being such a high-profile and successful woman in Parliament, needs to be replaced by another woman. But we also see the issue played out in a different way in the seat of Gilmore, where obviously um, you've now got a, a high-profile... Um candidate being put in from the from outside, being brought in. Warren and, Mundine, Warren Mundine, and whether um, that then goes against the issues of local democracy. So I think there's there's these overarching issues that apply to pre-selections which are quite tricky for political parties. That
0: they are, and particularly on the um on the conservative uh, side, the non-Labour side, um, uh, in with the labour party, uh, the safe seats uh, have a degree of stickiness, you can parachute in. Mm. Peter Garrett into Kingsford Smith, Martin Ferguson from uh, changed states from New South Wales to Victoria for for Batman, whereas the um, uh, the Liberal Party uh, and to some extent the National Party don't necessarily have that flexibility, and and attempts to do so often result in independence. the 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 other thing about it, I mentioned Julia Banks from Chisholm, who had a very um, uh, critical resignation speech. She was a product of the corporate sector and said, this is nowhere near as good as the corporate sector. But it is, I think you've said out there, Richard, why it's fallacious to draw the parallel. Mm. A a company board, a chairman, uh, a nominations committee to a company board can sit down and say, we need some diversity around the table. We need gender diversity. They could probably do a hell of a lot more to ensure viewpoint diversity. (laughs) But it is up to them and their shareholders uh, and their investors to make those kind of decisions and mm. you can plan it out you know when this mm. director re- resigns we will appoint someone of this type you cannot do no. that in mm. politics and you cannot have career planning and progression mm. planning it just doesn't apply in the in mm. the same way mm. so questions about culture are interesting but certainly you don't have the those kind of levers available yeah, to you yeah.
1: And, and, and further, Scott, to that point, the public, you know, have a say in this too. As much as the Liberal Party might have been planning, say, in Victoria as to which people they wanted to see part of the future, the public voted a lot of those people out. So, you know, Indeed.
2: <laughs> democracy works in funny ways.
0: It does. Um, Chris Berg, tell us about democracy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Look, I, I think I think it's incredibly patronising that um, we've seen from some people on the left when talking about what what I think is a real um, issue with Women's representation in the in the coalition, but but when looking at that and suggesting and, and conflating gender diversity with view, viewpoint diversity, if there were more women in the Liberal Party or in the coalition, then the coalition would think. These things differently, and I think that's incredibly patronising to women, and suggests to us how um, uh, that, that this is really just a cipher for um, some other political or ideological um, uh, battles that they're trying to trying to go on. As well, uh, the, the Liberal Party has a really deep history, a, a deep women's movement in history as well. The Liberal Party was founded by a collection of groups one of which was the um, Liberal Women's National League as well. And that was a deeply conservative women's movement. The Liberal Party has long tradition and should be proud of that tradition. I don't see why it can't try to pick that up on a practical sense and that might have political value and, and might sh- suggest that it represents um, uh, more of the Australian public than it does at the moment. But but deep down, that, that doesn't speak to what the Liberal Party believes. What are the messages that the Liberal Party wants to send and share. And I think those are the real problems that the Liberal Party faces right now. And those are the ones that it's going to really suffer from or the challenges it's going to really suffer from in whenever the election is in May. Yes, or- if,
0: if, they, if they knew exactly what values they were trying to propagate, then you can go out and find the best candidates, male or female, in order to push forward that agenda. So it's not about um, place filling.
3: Yeah, I totally agree that This whole conversation does end up being incredibly patronising towards women. Um, One of this whole thing about we need women in there, we we need women in there for, yeah, for viewpoint diversity. But by saying that, you're almost implying that women think completely differently or or all think very similarly um, when we should be looking at women as, you know, just another political candidate and not uh, a place filler.
0: Now, Renee, you, you were saying something uh, interesting. You're a, um, a great follower of uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, uh, work, um, the Canadian professor of psychology and now world figure, uh, or at least in the Anglo sphere. Uh, but he was making a point that he's looking. He'd been in Scandinavia, where uh, women's representation in the uh, in the various parliaments and uh, and leading institutions is perhaps higher than anywhere in the world, uh, but. That didn't necessarily lead to the outcomes that the uh, progressives would expect from that.
3: Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. So Scandinavia has made the taken the most steps to remove any barriers for women, both at you know the upper levels and at a very base level, uh, at, you know culturally wise. And what that has resulted in is more women in women's fields and more men in men's fields. So there's more female nurses and less male nurses in Scandinavia, and there's more male engineers and less female engineers. So that's actually the opposite of what the social scientists thought would happen. Uh, What it comes down to is when you actually remove the cultural barriers and any other barriers in the way that, um, you know, natural kind of biological choices or that women sway towards, you know, they sway towards careers that focus on people while men focus on careers that focus on things such as engineering. Uh, They actually become exaggerated. Whilst if you look at a country like India where, you know, poverty is something that's knocking on your door constantly and there actually are more um, cultural barriers for women, they have more women in IT and more women in STEM. So it's kind of the opposite result that we think. And it's not saying noticing these differences between women, you've got to put this on it, that we're saying all women have to be like this or all men have to be like that. Um, it's just you need to notice these differences when it, and ana, analysing these results and can't just say, well, there's not enough women in this field so that must be because of discrimination rather than choice. Any,
0: anything less than 50% of the engineering profession being female is a failure mm-hmm. un, under that, under that mm-hmm. kind of measure. Um, this this has been a good discussion, and it also touches on, of course, uh, that these people are doing a job for us. They they we we actually want <laughs> representatives to have some idea what they're doing. Ideally, uh, have a set of values which map, maps to the um, uh, the people they're meant to be representing, and they're and they're competent. Um, now, one of the great things about elections is, for a period of time, we suspend our disappointment with the existing set of rules, and hope for something better. It brings. <laughs> the prospect of uh, of generational change, and I don't know whether it's necessarily an age thing. I, for one, would be tremendously excited by the thought of Warren Mundine in the Federal Parliament. I think he's, uh, uh, he's a tremendous uh, individual and businessman um, who is also um, an able spokesman for the opportunities for the Indigenous people of Australia. So that, that, to me, is generational change, even though he's probably closer to my age than Renee's. Mm. Um, what are the prospects for generational change, do you think, Chris Berg?
2: Look, there's there's a lot of things going on in preparation for this this next election, and over the last week we've seen a number of stories about people who are moving on or people who are unlikely to contest the next election, and Kelly O'Dwyer is one of them, but as well, you know, David Bush, Bushby, Senator Bushby in um, Tasmania is moving on um, uh, to, I think, a diplomatic post, Craig Laundy, who's been talking about... Um, Uh, leaving for some time after the Malcolm Turnbull um, uh, leadership spill um, is also probably going to leave and there's been there's been predictions of this max, mass exodus. Now, uh, uh, putting aside what we think of any of the individuals that might be moving on, um, I think this is great. I think that when, if, as we assume what is going to happen is that the coalition is going to lose, then you do not want the opposition, the coalition in opposition to be full of representatives of the previous government. You need, it's not, it, to, to your point it's not really generational change it's just a change in leadership team because you know you you lose elections for a reason we've learned a lot about um what a coalition government is in power since uh, during the abbott turnbull morrison years now And and the next team, the next leadership set, is going to have to learn from that and implement some of those lessons. They won't be able to do it if if they're um, if it's still the same people. Did we
0: see that at the end of the Howard government? Is this a a factor in what we've we've seen in successive periods? No, this
2: is this is precisely one of the criticisms that I've weighed against the um, uh, Howard or the post-Howard coalition is that unfortunately there wasn't um, the sort of rejuvenation of the Liberal Party and the National Party that uh, that we should have seen in the wake of that government. Um, and perhaps if Tony Abbott hadn't been so successful as an opposition leader, we may have seen some of that. But because they got back into power after only two terms, it was sort of—it wasn't even the B team of the Howard government that was in charge. It was like the C or the D team. It was yeah. the it, it was the it was the people who were really young in the Howard years. Yeah. Suddenly, they're, you know, I mean, and Joe Hockey's a lovely guy, but he's the treasurer yeah. suddenly. Yes, um, <laughs> yes. but,
0: but, but
2: perhaps
1: paradoxically. Um, the, uh, the key figure who perhaps should have stayed on from the Howard years but didn't Pete, was Peter Costello so I think these things that you always want to have at some degree of you know continuity hence the fact you know John howard was the treasurer in the the Fraser government, but it worked out pretty well that he ended up staying around for that whole 13 years in, in opposition um, with all the ups and downs that he had in that time to hang around. So I think it's a real horses-for-courses things here. There are some you know, outstanding people who deserve to have very long careers in politics and can handle that and can, in a sense, evolve and develop them, themselves the way John Howard in particular did, um, whereas obviously there are others who clearly don't look like being part of the future. So I think Chris's general point is correct, but I think we... There is, there is always the advantage of having with certain individuals where a, a long career can actually be... You need very some very ambassadors from the past. Yes, <laughs> yes. A bit of corporate knowledge but also <laughs> the, the the ability that, you know, there are those, I think, outstanding figures of their generation. They don't have to do quite a Billy Hughes and be in parliament for 51 years but maybe, you know, sometimes a 30-year <laughs> career uh, can be of benefit. And, uh, and what,
0: what was uh, the Billy Hughes? They, they said, oh, Billy, and not only have you been here for 50 years, you've been a, a member of every party, haven't you? That's right, <laughs> except the Country Party. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which,
1: Billy Hughes, everybody has to draw the line somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Renee, what are the hopes for generational change?
3: I actually think... I agree with Chris. I think this is a really good thing for the party. I do think it's actually something that Labor has been much better at than us. Not only... Um, in opposition changing over, but there seems to be mechanisms within their party that if you're in a safe seat and you've been there for a very long time and you haven't even made it to you know, an assistant minister, someone will come and tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, we've got to get some new blood in here. And I think that there isn't enough movement and, and pushing up of new people, new blood in the Liberal Party, and this is a chance for that. And To talk about, you know, young people coming up in the party, I think we're seeing some really interesting figures who are younger, such as, you know, James Patterson's been there for a while, but James Patterson, Senator uh, Amanda Stoker, who are are unforgiving and uh, unapologetic about their views, very clearly defined where their views stand. And I think that may be a generational thing because, you know, going back to what I do um, at the IPA working with kids on campus if you've managed to go through university as a conservative as a libertarian as a classical liberal you've gone into class every day and had to debate had to argue had to get through and we're seeing the fruits of that actually being positive for our side because they come out of university very good at debating very clear on where they stand and I think they are going to do some really exciting stuff for the Liberal Party in the future.
2: This is something that I think is, is under-recognised as well. The, the coalition right now has a really deep backbench um, of talent and, and – um, I've got a, a list of names that I'll read out in a sec. And they're not – some of them you would say um, are more left-leaning or, or right-leaning on social issues. But they're all actually pretty economically dry. So they're all pretty free market. And so there's there's James Patterson, who you've mentioned. Tim Wilson, of course. Um, Dean Smith, um, uh, uh, for, senator from WA. is fantastic. Andrew Hastie. And then then there's there's a, a bunch that don't have as much of a national profile. Um, so Jonathan Dunham, he's the senator in Tasmania. Trevor Evans, he's the member. Member for Brisbane, um, Ben Morton, a member for Tangi, and. Um WA Jason Falinski, member for McKellar in New South Wales, and of course um, Senator Amanda Stoker, um, as, you, as you mentioned, Renee. And this is actually a really deep backbench. It's it is cross ideological in in a lot of senses, but um, it's actually a very very talented bunch of of younger people or younger members of Parliament that are the names that we're going to be talking about in in five years or even <laughs> even in a couple of months when when they're trying to figure out what the opposition um, uh, benches look like. Yeah. But but it does suggest it does suggest the value of this generational change, that we're not just talking about the old guards. Who, who's going to stick around to be that ambassador from the past? We don't know. Um, uh, but, but certainly um, I, I, I can see it's, it's a very strong backbench, um, probably stronger than the Labor parties at the moment as well.
0: And it's interesting too that you, you, you started that by saying, uh, Chris, that there were various shades of, say, ideological bent in there, um, not all uh, extremely dry uh, on the economic front, various views on social issues, but the what yeah, that also holds out the prospect was once you, once you are having debates about values, you can actually have a proper debate. Whereas the Liberal Party, uh, the the terms moderates, conservatives, or hard righters get up calls anyone who's not actually <laughs> a socialist. Um, sometimes these labels, I'm not sure they actually reflect any particular leaning. It,
1: Yeah, look, nothing frustrates me more than that, Scott, and nothing's frustrated me more in my whole time of being interested in politics than that issue. When I first started taking interest in politics, which was way back in the 1970s, there was so often just the terms were big L liberal or small L liberal, which... Perhaps then didn't make a lot of sense then, but at least had some sort of understanding. Whereas now um, people use those terms and they make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, you know, we heard often a lot of the commentary after the Victorian state election that it had been a you know the Victorian Liberal Party um, opposition had been a hard right opposition, and I don't I don't know on <laughs> what particular bent this was meant to be. And people were talking about it as if it was all mixed up of economics and social issues altogether. Um, people really do need to delineate what they're talking about. And as Chris said in outlining that, you now get this situation where we have economic drives who have different views on social issues. But I think part of the problem in our um, public life in recent years is we've spent an inordinate amount of time on some of those social issues. So as people's views on those have tended to, to dominate and we haven't had enough discussion about some of what are still the key economic challenges of Australia, which I think often... Um, are much more interesting and much more informative, and much more important to the future of the nation than some of the, the what sometimes are distractions of endless debates are going over and over the same ground on certain social issues.
2: My view is very much that we've got. If we look at this and we say we've got a really deep backbench mm. of talent mm. that we're going to, that is going to be influential in the next five years or so. That's an opportunity for us. That's an opportunity mm. for for the IPA. That's an opportunity for the centre right intellectual mm. movement as a whole to influence. Um, uh, these these people, if they're capable of understanding, as I'm certain that these ones are, um, uh, uh, that's not true for all members of Parliament. But I think these ones are capable of understanding. Then then that's that's fertile ground for us to um, convince them of the way forward, or convince mm-hmm. them of what liberalism or conservatism of the 21st century looks like, mm-hmm. of the policies that we need, of the the social and economic mm-hmm. policies that are going to face the new challenges, that, that that these people, I think, I think will understand and, and are starting to understand.
0: Yeah, that is, that is truly looking forward. Um, as we look God. forward uh, to the... So on message. <laughs> <laughs> so on message. Now you should be in politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Dude. Imagine Chris in Parliament. Um, <laughs> that, would, that would be great. <laughs> um, of course, just observe uh on current polling a four and a half percent swing to the ALP, so there might be less seats to go around. But uh actually most of the names you mentioned I don't see uh on the uh the Macaris pendulum as as going out uh with the four and a half percent predicted swing, perhaps and Nicole Flint in Puthby, Nicole, who's, Nicole yeah. is excellent as well. And, she's excellent, and she's but she's an, on she a 2.7% yeah. 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 uh, margin. And obviously
1: it'll be very hard for, for Warren Mundine to get elected in Gilmore, who's been one of the most marginal seats in 0. the 0.7%. Uh, yeah, so um, that's very, going to be a challenge.
0: Very brave of him to actually mm. um, uh, have a crack on those grounds. Uh, uh,
3: Gilmore uh, actually votes on the person. There. So this is mm. an area that's, that's mm. right near where I used to live. And uh, Joanna Gash, who was in there what, before... What, what,
0: what, where is that? Where, what are the towns? Uh. So,
3: Nowra, uh, Kiama, uh, so south coast of New South Wales. And uh, before Malis, there was Joanna Gash, who was in for, I think, almost four terms. Mm. And it wasn't that necessarily the people of that area were very keen on Liberals, but they were definitely keen on Joanna Gash. And they vote on the candidate, and I think... Warren Mundine is an excellent campaigner and is going to be excellent on the ground with people. But we have also seen that uh, Schwaltz this morning has announced that he is running as an independent, so that could so throw us We'll, we'll in all works. follow that, and no,
0: no doubt various IPA staff members will be um, uh, checking the betting sites to um, uh, see, see what they can get for, for Mundine. Uh, the other thing about elections, as well as candidates, uh, the most important thing, of course, is money. Um, what, but we we read uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age uh, that uh, the Bill Shorten and the federal ALP are considering a series of uh, election funding reforms. And I love the way everything is called a reform uh, that would place a four thousand dollar cap on donations uh, and uh, allegedly lock out large corporate and union contributions. Um, Chris Berg, what's what's driving this?
2: Yeah, so so Bill Shorten has been talking um, and the Labor Party in general has been talking about donations reform for some time. Um, uh, they are considering a group of uh, a bunch of models at the moment, one of which is the um, uh, donations reform introduced by the Victorian Labor Party um, just recently, which again bans donations above $4,000 over four years. Um, so this would be a massive cut down on the amount of money that... that the um, parties can raise from, from individuals, from uh, donors, philanthropists and of course corporations and it would be compensated by a really massive increase or it has been. In Victoria it's been compensated by a really massive increase in the amount of money the parties get from, from the government. So at the first instance you think who is this in favour of? Well it's in favour of political parties and it's in favour of established political parties. There's no coincidence that uh, there's two things to this. So first of all I'm inherently sceptical of any government that tries to reform the rules by which elections are conducted.
0: They're not doing it for the public interest. Even if people. even
2: if I can be convinced that, you know, all else being equal, this would be a great reform. I do not trust the government that tries to do it because – or the political party that announces it – because it's inevitably going to be part of some calculation – made by their in-house sophologists or their in-house financiers about who's going to win and lose. And people and, and parties win and lose on the basis of these electoral reforms. So I'm inherently skeptical at any reform. And I think we should just stick with the status quo as, as problematic maybe as it is. Um, uh, But this is very much in the interests of the Labor Party, because while this would crack down on, quote, corporate donations, bearing in mind that the largest donation in the last electoral cycle was from Malcolm Turnbull personally, but um, uh, this would crack down on corporate donations, it would not affect, as far as we can tell, Mm. the Union Party's Donations, Because the union party dresses up a lot of its payments to the Labour Party, not just as political campaigning donations and gifts, but through other sorts of receipts. um, uh, In in Victoria, in fact, um, while the uh, Labour Party received $1.4 million in donations from the unions, they also received $4.5 million in other receipts. So this would not affect the unions, um, uh, union support of the Labour Party.
0: Um, Richard, uh, tell us, uh, you've you've been an observer of uh, the Victorian reforms, what what have been some of the outcomes there and what would it mean federally if implemented there?
1: Well I don't think we've really seen the full effect of the Victorian legislation because most of the aspects of it came into effect on the 25th of November, so the day after the state election, so we're into a new um, cycle. Certainly as far as I know it's created a lot of chaos in terms of just branch you know because there's a lot of rules now that you can only have one bank account um, so individual liberal Party branches I know have had to you know close bank accounts and send all their money in centrally so it's created a lot of um, administrative problems there's also I know a lot of people are raising questions about with the individual uh, cap on donations across the cycle um, people are wondering if for instance they go to a party fundraising dinner and the cost of they get charged $80 needing to find out what the actual cost of the dinner is so they can work out how much of a donation they're making to the party so if you go to an $80 a head dinner um, it's potential that the people putting on the dinner will have to advise you that uh, the cost, of, the actual cost of the dinner was $60 and it, it, it is a $20 profit and you have to then keep a record of that to make sure you're not <laughs> oh, exceeding gracious. the limit. And goodness knows what happens then if you buy the raffle tickets on the table as well. I'm not sure if, if that's part of your donation or not. So,
0: But if you wanted to, uh, at that dinner, you, just, uh, you happen to have a bit of a coin, yeah. been successful in your life and you believe in mm. what that particular mm. candidate or party is trying to achieve and you pull out the cheque book uh, and you want to write a cheque for $5,000... Well, you're in trouble now. You can't. Mm. And and so the, the philosophical issue being that uh, mm. this is... Not everyone can be in Parliament, but this is one... We talk about representation, but that is mm. part of representation where people have yeah. the ability to... Yeah.
1: And obviously, on the labour side, Chris was talking about the unions. Obviously, the part of what the unions do is direct campaigning on their own behalf, but the, the byproduct of it may well be that supporting the same position as that the the, the labour party is putting. Whereas, uh, obviously, there's no real equivalent on the coalition side of politics in that situation, where they'll be campaigning on their own behalf, but effectively campaigning for the labour party.
2: Yeah, that's right, and and you can add get up to that as well. Yep. I mean, I, I, I will make this case, which is th- this is kind of fun in one sense because it's like the regulatory state eating itself. Mm. So first of all, they regulated us, and now they've started regulating themselves so mm. that it is a nightmare to run a political yep. party or decide what constitutes a campaign. They're mm. going to spend all their time. Well, and also
0: the disruptors. Uh, one of the things about rules is disruptors come along and uh, do strange things with them. So we saw... Darren Hinch's party mm. actually walk away with it uh, because it managed to get four four mm. seats in the mm. in the upper house. Uh, it was well into the millions of dollars because they decided they would allocate funding on seats rather than votes, as had previously been done. This was very good for Darren, although... <laughs> then one
1: of his people quit straight away, so... Before the, they'd even yeah, taken their seat. And did she get to keep the money, or does the party keep so the money? There's lots of questions. Quite
0: yeah. quite, quite possibly uh, she has a party of one, hmm. which will now be entitled to that funding. Hmm. So uh, that we look forward to seeing uh, uh, the results of all that as they play out over time. Uh, we might uh, jump over the Pacific... Now, to what 's happening in the United states where uh, which, where there 's certainly been some disruption and it 's in the middle of a uh, a shutdown at the moment. Um, now there is plenty of this around uh, coverage of this in the media, mainly that this has been an enormous catastrophe um, uh, almost like the entire country has been shut down, not just the federal government um, Chris Berg, can you Tell us a little bit more about what's happening over there and what it means.
2: Yeah, look, so so the, the government shutdown and that's – and, and I'll, I'll describe in a sec – that that's actually yeah, has a very specific meaning. But this is not as as many people have observed the, the first government shutdown um, around the world. Um, uh, there, there have been some really prominent government shutdowns recently – in the last decade or so, Belgium was famously shut down for between 541 or 589 days, depending on how you mention it. Northern Ireland right now has no government. They, they, they are currently in shutdown. They are the winners. They're up around 700 days. Cambodia had a government shutdown um, for about 353 days um, back in the early 2000s as well. Um, I raise this because a lot of people have um, mentioned that government shutdowns are nothing to worry about, but um, because, you you know Belgium did fine and Belgium actually did really really well in this period but the US government shutdown is very different from these previous ones because they're shutting down a different part of the government so the Belgian to stick with Belgium the Belgian government shutdown was a sh- shutdown of the the political government they couldn't form a political government in their legislature the US government shutdown the political government is fine Donald Trump's doing his stuff Nancy Pelosi's doing her stuff. The political government keeps going; they're having senate sessions and so forth. But the um, the, the bureaucracy is shut down as well. Um, instead, I should say. Um, so all the politicians, they're happy. All the public servants, they're less happy. A lot of people, in turn, have said, "Well, isn't this wonderful?" From a libertarian perspective, you know, wouldn't it be great to shut down the Australian bureaucracy as well? But I think what we're seeing is. Um, it, it's it's revealing how deeply involved the government is or government permission is with so much of the american economy that um it it ends up being quite a quite a big problem. People working, you know, security agents, um, the TSA working for free is a problem. Um, The inability to do things like initial public offerings because you can't get sign off from financial regulators is a problem. Um, And and, and I, I hope that this sort of demonstrates how deeply involved the government is with so much petty and not particularly important stuff that we can slow that that it's it's quite harmful
0: and that is the libertarian dream the the conservative dream uh for trump supporters is more around the wall which is the reason uh to for trump not signing off on the congressional budget uh that the democrats are looking for uh renee how do you think that's going to play out
3: i think everything right now is really playing into trump's hands he said that he was going to drain the swamp he decided just to shut down the swamp. and, up this <laughs> one. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, right now we're seeing uh, a standoff between him and Nancy Pelosi about the State of the Union Address, um, that she is saying that you're not welcome to do the State of the Union Address in Congress. I think personally that that would be awesome because the State of the Union Address is just all a lot of pomp and ceremony and is generally very long and boring. If he did do just a formal letter... Um, as George Washington did in the first State of the Union address, and then did a you know a summary of seven minutes in the Oval Office on television, I think that could only be good for Trump um, and also, I think a lot of this this kind of extremism reaction from uh, the Democrats about how bad the government shutdown is, that, you know, the world is ending is kind of falling on deaf ears at the moment. I do think the narrative of fake news and you can't trust the media is, is permeating a lot of, especially middle America. So, you know, right now, I think he's looking like he might get his way, but we don't know how this is going to play out.
0: Um, what, what is the end game though, Richard? Is, uh, I mean, it, will, will Trump get funding for the wall?
1: um i don't know i mean it's so hard to predict anything in u.s politics at the moment as to actually how it's going to play out i mean all previous shutdowns have have ended um this is a bit of a different sort of one because most other shutdowns have been about issues where you could sort of see a a way to compromise and have a, a solution that sort of worked for both sides here it's a bit harder to see what the the compromise is when it's over such a fundamental issue um as the wall and obviously the longer the shutdown goes and we'll hear more and more hard luck stories about people who are not getting paid um i think that will become a harder and harder so i don't think the shutdown will go indefinitely but um as to how it's actually resolved i think that it's it's very um hard to predict and i think from a talking from a libertarian-type point of view, um, the shutdown doesn't really have any lasting positive benefit because in the end all the people get the back pay and it <laughs> ends up costing... <laughs> it ends, it, the, all previous shutdowns, I think the evidence is they've ended up costing government more money. So government ends up... you know The, the cost to government ends up being greater because of a shutdown than when you don't have a have a shutdown. Do you actually get
0: a paid holiday if you're a non-essential employee? Is that, how, is that the practical effect of it? You're, yeah, you're told not to come into work and then... I and then you so get your back pay, so
2: I,
1: I assume that's how it um Works, but
2: yeah. I want to p- I want to pick mm. up Renee's points about the State of the Union uh, because I share a view on on the, the State of the Union is a disgusting, disgusting yep. um, uh, show of presidential power. It's mm. it's it's the worst sort of the imperial mm. presidency where once a year they come to the legislature and announce what they've been doing mm. in their direction. They I, I, I think like it's, they, they yes. treat them like a king. They treat them like a king, and I think it's really disgusting. Mm. And if this was the way to get rid of the State of the Union, then it will have been all worthwhile mm. in making the American presidency more modest. Mm. On the other hand, I have no reason to believe that's what Donald Trump thinks mm. about the State <laughs> of the <laughs> Union. In fact, I think he—that that is his favorite part of the presidency. Oh, yes. um, uh, now, they are working towards, they're still writing the State of the Union. Mm. They're talking about doing the State of the Union in the Senate. Um, uh, if only this was the step towards the great, um, uh, the, the making the presidency more modest, but but yeah. un- I, unfortunately, I... like a lot of. Things when we talk about Donald Trump, they're sort of the ideal Donald Trump in our head, you know, the perfect Donald Trump out there that, that we imagine. But in practice, he's really upset that he doesn't get to be the imperial <laughs> president <laughs> mm. yeah. in a couple of days. Yeah.
3: If anyone wants to be a king, it's yeah, Donald, yeah. Trump. Yes, <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes, he doesn't want to be
2: delivering the Queen's speech,
1: where <laughs> no. it's written by the legislature. Yeah, no, no <laughs> that's all
0: right. Um, uh, but of course, the other and the other part of that is that there are ebbs and flows in presidential powers. Um, this is one of uh, Richards uh, who reads uh, has written every book on us politics and presidents ever uh, would know about. but uh, this coverage, uh, particularly that you see out of Australia where it's sort of like a total state of shock implies that it's a constitutional crisis. But of course, the American Constitution uh, was written with a separation of powers, and both the president and the Congress has to be involved in passing. Bills, just as the Governor General in our system, so, uh, or the Queen in the UK, signs off on bills before they can become law. So I really—that's the bit I object to—that this sense that uh, the entire uh, system is broken. So, in, or in Australia, the parallels have been: oh my God, we've had you know six prime ministers in five years. The system is broken. Uh, this is, uh, in many ways, just politics working out. Sometimes you have periods of stability. Um, different parties control different organs, institutions have different roles. It's not a constitutional
2: crisis. I'm going to give the pessimistic take on that, that that it is a constitutional crisis, but it's a constitutional crisis that's been going on for a lot longer than Donald Trump. Um, uh, the capacity of the um, American president to act without congressional authority um, uh, across a wide range of spending Um, military, um, uh, all sorts of issues, is a constitutional crisis that has been getting worse um, uh, over the last decade, particularly, and particularly since the Obama years. And what was terrifying, I think, about, um, uh, or what was most terrifying about the shutdown earlier this month was the very widespread discussion from the media and from Trump himself that he would be able to use a you know, national emergency powers to get the policy he wanted that is within the legislature's prerogative without having to go to the legislature. That. Is, is not something that he invented, that the, um, Barack Obama very famously used these sorts of powers mm-hmm. to achieve his, his policy goals. But the idea that it's become this normalized, well, we don't need to go back to, to the legislature for um, appropriations or for permission or for, for you know, bills mm-hmm. and so forth is really terrifying.
0: And on another episode of this podcast, I think we, we should talk about the history of the Royal Prerogative and, uh, <laughs> and what happened to Charles the I. <laughs> At some point, Parliament yes. actually does need to yes. step up. A, I, I volunteer for that. that <laughs> Very good. Um, speaking of uh, books, this is the segment of this podcast where we, uh, we close by talking about some of the things we've been reading, watching and listening to. Um, Renee, what's, what's been taking your attention lately?
3: Uh, I recently just went and saw The Favourite. Uh, I actually saw it at Sun Theatre in Yarraville, which is a lovely little independent theatre. And I think it's pretty much one of the best films I've seen in a very, very long time. Really amazingly directed, and I'm never going to pronounce this director's name correctly. It's uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. He's Greek. Uh, And I think that he's done some really brilliant movies in the past, and I think he's going to be... Uh, a noteworthy director in the future looking at his work so far Uh, I highly encourage everyone to go to see The Favourite if you don't know what it's about a very brief kind of introduction is it's about uh, Queen Anne uh, and uh, kind of her demise and kind of uh, the you know the staff around her and it's a combination of very much a period piece, but also very much a director's vision with some quirks and some humour. So it's very, very good. I encourage you all to see it.
0: And no, and, uh, good, good choice, Renee. And also, um, I went and did some hard research after I saw it, which means I looked up Wikipedia, <laughs> um, and very actually uh, quite historically accurate. Yeah. Um, uh, the whole the whole thing about. Um, uh, uh, Lady Sarah Churchill and uh, her ups and downs, and various influence at court, how they changed from the Whigs and the, to the to the Tories, and uh, and had a peace with France. Uh, it it's all pretty well true, um, which is remarkable that you could have such a an entertaining, well written uh, movie with, as you say, a director's vision. But they didn't throw the history out; they actually uh, they built on it. So.
3: I really hope to see that Natalie Coleman at least gets nominated for an Oscar because I think her performance as the Queen was brilliant. She really um, tread the line of being quite eccentric um, without being t- hamming it on too thick or seem- seeming unbelievable and you did empathise with her quite a lot even though she obviously could not deal with the pressures of being uh, you know, the Queen and, and all that. She had had quite a horrible life before this. So you did empathise with her quite a lot and I thought that was done really well.
2: Chris? Um, So I last night watched um, the documentary about the Fire Festival on Netflix Um, and I know that the Young IPA podcast has uh, uh, had a conversation about this. Yesterday, but the fire festival. First of all, the documentary is incredible. I was, I I had my mouth open the whole time in um, horrid amusement. So the fire festival was this um, music festival um, uh, that was meant to be in May 2017 on a island in the Bahamas. Um, it was set up by this sort of entrepreneur um, uh, guy named Billy McFarland with the rapper Ja rule and it was um, and it brought in these um, Instagram influencers very fashionable people models and and so forth as well as a whole bunch of bands um, uh, in order to have this this insanely pleasurable island um, music festival experience it was an Utter catastrophe, and I remember seeing the social media off the side um, uh, just briefly when it happened. Um, but basically, the story is they did n- almost no planning for it. They um, uh, they just kept charging people more and more money for these luxury accommodations. Um, uh, everything went wrong. They didn't spend much time. Um, thinking about what would happen if this things went wrong, um, it turns out that instead of staying in luxury accommodation, they all the guests were supposed to stay in these these emergency tents that had been taken to the Bahamas by I don't know um, uh, by aid agencies left over a cyclone. Post cyclone, and and um, uh, and so there are all all these people who spent four thousand dollars being dumped in this. Um, place that had very little electricity very little water um, almost no planning on on quote they'd arrived there on quote private jets but turns out it was just like a 737 that um, a budget airliner that had had a um Logo painted on the side. Anyway, it is a incredible documentary. You, you have to watch it because um, just to see how – so it's two things. What, what are of all, the lessons we take from Okay, this. so there's two lessons. There's two lessons from this. First of all, um, logistics is hard. I don't, know. <laughs> 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 I don't know whether you know that, but you can't just get through logistics um, uh, by hanging out with rappers and, um, and, and partying. So, you know, logistics is a real challenging thing. And I- the second lesson is if we were a Marxist podcast – I would say this is the definition of late capitalism. (laughs) It is the most um, – it's driven entirely by Instagram influencers. It's driven entirely by marketing and PR. People are shelling out extraordinary sums of money for what was a hilariously – Hilariously bad, um, uh, bad production. The 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 guy who who ran it is now in jail for, for various <laughs> wire frauds and all sorts of things. Um, they knew what they were doing was oh, false. Right. Av- anyway, it's a great documentary. And we thought and, and Woodstock a, was chaotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were hoping it was as good as Woodstock um, in the end. In fact, they referenced that. No one remembers how bad Woodstock was. Well, yeah. Um, uh, it turns out they didn't even e- even get to that that lofty height. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'll have to watch it because I've heard the story before on a YouTube channel, and my husband and I couldn't stop laughing as they went through how badly it went. And now they've made a whole documentary. Well, there's actually
2: two documentaries, so there's another one um, on Hulu, which I don't know that we can get in Australia, but um, the Netflix one is is just incredible and and great fun for for an hour and a half just to see some some people be real idiots.
0: Speaking of Netflix, uh, in our pilot, I did uh, uh, pick uh, or recommend a movie called Roma by uh, directed by Alfonso uh, Cuarón, the uh, Mexican director. And I was very pleased to read this morning that uh, it has been nominated for an Academy Award—the first mm. time a Netflix mm. movie uh, has been nominated for an Academy Award—and deservedly so. For they had
2: to—they had to put it in some um, uh, physical theaters, though, as well. Or am I wrong?
0: Uh, yeah, it was uh, the poster that I saw. Did say in limited release, yeah, two theaters <laughs> in the <Midwest. laughs> In, in Hackens- Hackensack, New Jersey. Yes. Four people went. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. They qualified. Yeah. yeah, well, uh, them's the rules. <laughs> them's the rules. And uh, various studios uh, had had uh, the opportunities to buy a bid on that movie, but uh, in the end, it was Netflix and its buckets of money that were able to get that uh, remarkable story about uh, the seventies in Mexico over the line. Uh, what, what I actually wanted to recommend was something not on Netflix, but uh, about a, nearly 100 years old. Uh, when I was in America last year, I picked up a one-volume uh, biography of, a uh, one-volume version of a biography of Abraham Lincoln oh, very uh, uh, by the uh, uh, by Carl Sandberg, who was a writer and uh, a poet. And uh, Richard, you read a lot of American biographies, but I must say it was great to read something written so long ago. Because not only was it beautifully written, it's it was interested in things like character. Mm. He actually spoke to people who had known Lincoln um, and read contemporary reports. He actually took at face value that most of the political actors, uh, whilst they may have been um, venal and corrupt because it's America, um, <laughs> did actually have uh, values that they were pursuing. One doesn't start a, a civil war unless one actually believes mm-hmm in what one doing, and and, uh, and Lincoln was such a, a remarkable character in many ways and very hard to unpack, uh, great at delaying. He used to tell a lot of stories so that he wouldn't have to make a decision. When people came and asked him to do X, Y, or Z, he'd, he'd put them off by telling crazy stories and they'd complain about it at the time and then years later they might say, oh, now I actually get what he's doing. So I also once read um, a modern Book on Lincoln by Doris Kearns, but uh, this is vastly mm. superior, and, and just reminds us that um, uh, the writing of history wasn't always about race, class, and gender. Mm. I must go back and tell our Bella Debrera that, uh, in apropos her critique of Australian history, that um, there is another way to do it. Mm. Uh, another way to do it so Carl Sandberg's work on Abraham Lincoln I commend to anyone who loves sort of antiquarian books Mm. and I'm sure the folio society's had a crack at it or Mm. Yale press or Mm. someone like that too Mm. Richard Uh,
1: yes so well political biography has been a bit of part of what I've been reading over summer Um, I'm part way through a new biography of Ronald Reagan by Bob Spitz, which has so far been pretty good, so I'm enjoying that. Uh, but prior to that, I read probably the from an Australian point of view the political biography of the, the summer period, which was Tiberius with a telephone uh, by Mullins, which is the, the biography... Billy McMahon, long long-awaited uh, biography of um, Billy McMahon. People have been talking about doing biographies of Billy McMahon for a very long time. I'm not
0: sure I was actually waiting for it, but <laughs> uh...
1: um, I think a lot of people. It's a bit of a gap in the uh, you know. <laughs> you, you, I know like me, you have your prime Minister biography somewhere on the shelf, all lined up there, and there's a bit of a, a gap there between, uh, um, Gorton and Whitlam, looking to be filled. But now it has been, um, and look, it's a very it's a very good. I certainly recommend it. I think it does. Um, do a lot to um, fill the gap um, about about McMahon. It probably still doesn't quite tease out all because McMahon's is, is, in many ways, is a fascinating person because he did have, in like political philosophy terms, some. He was quite reasonable for that period, which um, in many ways was a period uh, where there wasn't much dry economics around, wasn't really the flavour of the month. He was one of the earliest exponents of at least some dry elements in his policy views and certainly in his policy battles with McEwen about um, protectionism. He was on the right side of that. But nonetheless, obviously, his personality was not one which appealed to a lot of his um, contemporaries. Even even, he,
0: even that phrase Tiberius with a telephone. Well, so Tiberius being famous for
1: for. Uh, Talking, a, talking a lot, and you know, not making decisions. So, it, and I think it's a key point is that the, the title of this biography of him takes up something which was an insult delivered about him by Gough Whitlam. So, um, you're not probably not going too well if your if your biography of your life is has headed by by an insult. But McMahon, I think you know, none he. He didn't lose the 1972 election by all that much too, which is an interesting thing that people tend to forget. People tend to think Whitlam was elected in a landslide in 1972, but he wasn't. But the other thing that's really struck me is when I've told people that I've been um, reading this biography, how many people have said, well, was that period in Australian politics... Worse than our current period? Was McMahon the worst Prime Minister ever, or has one of the recent incumbents taken that title off him? <laughs> of which there are many. There, there are many. Depending <laughs> <laughs> on people's you know, political persuasion and take on this, there's, there's a candidate really from everybody's point of view amongst uh, our recent batch of um, Prime Ministers. So I think that's what, one of the most interesting things. So um, I have.
0: What do you say when they ask you that, Richard?
1: Well, I have written a review for the IPO review, so maybe people should wait and read my review, do <laughs> you <laughs> think, Yes, uh, dear, a, dear editor. yes which <laughs> you'll be able to
0: do at, uh, at the end of March. And uh, a very uh, good review
2: it is Mc- too.
1: Uh, but can, uh, okay, oh, go on. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. Go so
2: McMahon's mm. – uh, uh, I, I mm. just want to mm. emphasise that point that you made. McMahon is a really interesting figure, less for his prime ministership and more yeah. for his role within the very early – Periods of the drives, mm. um, uh, developing the battle against um, McEwan mm. and developing out the idea that you could have free market economic mm. reform um, when it needed to be really heavily yep. defended within the coalition yep. itself. Yep. Um, and it's a real shame that it was such a yep. such a disappointing or depending on it could be yep. disastrous prime minister. But it's also you know it, it was a bad time to yep. be prime minister. Yep. You've the the coalition's been in power for decades. Yep. Um, uh, eventually, governments lose yeah, power, yeah. You, um, yeah, and uh, you, you become prime minister on the vote. Of, you
1: know, the casting vote of your predecessor who then becomes your deputy. You yeah, know, yeah like, no, no like, it, like, was, it doesn't get much more dysfunctional
2: than no, that. No, it's a, mm. it's a it's a bad. <laughs> it's like Theresa May. I mean, mm. I don't think Theresa May could have been a great prime minister. Mm. But genuinely, we will never know. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 okay. being able to um, navigate those complexities. Mm.
3: I actually uh, saw an example of how disliked McMahon was. Uh, my husband, Zachary Gorman, wrote a piece about McMahon in Quadrant quite a few years ago. And we attended a book launch and were surrounded by many o- older writers and historians who have written for Quadrant and such many times. And their comment to Zachary was generally, it was a very brave piece, Zachary, to defend <laughs> <laughs> to defend McMahon. Very very brave brave piece. They had no more comments apart from that and at the end Zach said to me this is why I'm never going to write about someone who people who know him are alive I'm just going to keep writing about <laughs> dead, dead people, long no. people. And, the, and, the
2: worry is, and the worry is 50 years from now there's going to be a group of people doing a podcast going you know there's a strong case for Scott Morrison you know? <laughs> 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 oh and, uh, oh well uh,
0: <laughs> I'd look, I look forward to being uh, around for that uh, <laughs> uh, no doubt Renee will be the one behind the and, microphone.
1: And if you wanted another book reference and I can tell you this is a good book because as I was coming it's a book I read over summer and as I was coming in on the train today, the bloke across the aisle was reading the same book so I thought there was a bit of an endorsement for it. It's a book called Scrublands which by Chris Hammer, former or current journalist. Who and it very much captures uh, a country town in the Australian summer. So anybody looking for a bit of fiction to read, that would be my recommendation out of the fiction. Anyone
0: still on the holidays out there, yep. lucky you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, get a get around of, that. Yeah, no, around, it's get closest. it on the Kindle.
1: You'll need to be on holidays for a few more days because it's a reasonably thick book. So, yeah, you know, well, you know, I think
0: you know there are some lucky people out there for whom Australia Day is the end of their actual summer holidays, mm. unlike the rest of us uh, who are uh, back, at, back at the IPA defending freedom. So... Mm. Um, I'd like to thank all of the panellists today, uh, my co-host Chris Berg. Thank you. Renee Gorman. Thank you. Dr. Richard Alsop. Thanks, Scott. I'd also like to thank our producer for today, James Bolt, whom, of course, you can also hear on the Young IPA podcast along with Pete Gregory. Uh, if you've enjoyed this and you're not already a subscriber, um, you can get on to... Looking forward uh, on iTunes, Podbeam or any of the other podcast platforms or you can get it it from our website but much better to subscribe so that you're notified of new episodes and also some special events that we've got coming up uh, which will be out of sequence. And uh, I I will close by saying, of course, the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the Institute of Public Affairs, although some of them do. Uh, This has been Looking Forward. Uh, We'll talk to you again next week.